I'm Susan Moran. And I'm Kendra Kruger, and this is How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. Today is Tuesday, October 25th, 2016. Coming up, science writer Ed Young talks about his recently published book, I Contain Multitudes, The Microbes Within Us, and a Grander View of Life. It might make you think twice about who you really are. See, the closest approximation, it seems, that we have roughly one of these microbial cells for each of our actual human cells. So we're all just half the people who we think we are. Let's start with a bit of recent science news and some calendar events. Remember when Grandma used to put her glasses on so she could hear you better? Well, animals might need to put their earplugs in in order to smell you better. Okay, that might be kind of tangentially related to Grandma, but anyway, a team at the University of Bristol has discovered that noise from human environments can inhibit the ability of animals to detect scents. The study observed that dwarf mongooses in the presence of road noise were less responsive to olfactory cues. The scientists suggest that these behaviors could have detrimental effects on the animal's ability to hide and defend itself from nearby predators. It's unclear how the effect is manifested, but it is another indicator that humans and the human environments have been stressing animals and impacting the animal world. The study was published yesterday in the journal Current Biology. And on the science calendar here in Colorado, next Tuesday, November 8th, that would be Election Day, prepare to be transported elsewhere through the worlds of storytelling and science through a performance called Story Earth, bringing story and science of Earth alive. Master storyteller Odds Bodkins brings folklore and ancient myth of Gaia to life for a modern audience. Martin Nogle, a naturalist and Earth scientist, will juxtapose this raw interpretation of Greek myth with emerging understandings of humans and Earth to conceive a new story. And Kendra, I hear you're involved in this one, right? It sounds intriguing. That's right. I'll be helping to emcee and facilitate this whole experience and talk about my background in science and connecting with my own African stories and ancestry. For tickets and information, go to tinyurl.com backslash Story Earth Science. Also on the calendar, fun things are happening for Halloween at the Denver Museum for Nature and Science this weekend. Friday, October 28th is Halloween night, and Saturday is family sleepover night. On a separate note, next Tuesday, November 1st, there will be a talk on women in power in the ancient world, also at the museum. It'll feature research on Hatshepsut and the rarely told story of this female pharaoh of Egypt. Find out more about these events on the Denver Museum of Nature and Science Facebook page or go to www.dmns.org. Listening to How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Susan Moran. There's one thing many of us take for granted, or at least our culture has taught us to take for granted, and that's what we think of as ourselves, you know, these bodies of flesh and organs. So it may be unsettling to learn that only half of our bodies is actually our human selves. 
The other half is a bunch, like around 40 trillion, of invisible microbes and another few quadrillion viruses, all living and reproducing in and on our bodies. And they influence our brain in a big way. Ed Young, a science writer for The Atlantic, found it disconcerting at first himself to learn this when he researched his book, which is called I Contain Multitudes, The Microbes Within Us and a Grander View of Life. It was published earlier this year. Last week, we played snippets from the interview I recently had with Ed during our fall pledge drive. First of all, thank you so much for the members who pledged, and thanks to Ed Young's publisher, Echo, an imprint of HarperCollins for giving KGNU several copies, which are now in the hands of listeners who pledged. Now we'll air the full interview. So the title itself fascinates me. It's one of the most literary poetic I've run across, and it's sort of a window into this world. As you say, I contain multitudes. Just tell us a little bit about why you chose this title, and for that matter, why you chose to dive into this topic of tiny, mighty creatures. Well, the title is obviously a reference to a Walt Whitman poem, his famous line, I am large, I contain multitudes. Um, and he was talking about different sides to a person's self. But um, that's sort of what I'm talking about in the book, too. I'm talking about how every individual person is really an ecosystem, an entire world teeming with different life forms, all of which are microscopic. And these microbes, these bacteria and other um, microscopic organisms play a profound influence on our lives. Um, they help to digest our food and um, build our bodies, and they protect us from disease and shape our immune system. They really are incredibly important. And um, I think that this tells us that we aren't just individuals. We, we aren't just um, going about our own lives under our own power um, under our own steam. We are, in fact, living our lives in conversation and in partnerships with lots of other organisms that share our bodies. And you say and in, profound... in conversation, in partnership. So it's, it's good and it's bad, or it's neither. Is it sort of the mix of, the, the health of the mix, just as you discuss in the book, the health of um, ecosystems in the natural world is akin to the health of the ecosystems in our microbial communities in and on our body, Right. Yeah, that's true. Um, so our bodies are just another world in which microbes inhabit, rather like a, a drop of water or a lump of soil. Um, and some of them do good things for us. They certainly play beneficial roles in our bodies, and certainly the vast majority of microbes are either benign or beneficial to us. Um, but they aren't inherently good. There's no such thing as an inherently good bacterium. We need ways of stabilizing and maintaining our relationships with them to keep those partnerships harmonious and happy. And just on the numbers front, I learned in your book that, that we have 40 trillion microbes in and on our bodies. I mean, how do we know that? Uh, these estimates are pretty rough. Uh, they're based on you know small samples of the microbes that live in our gut, but... Um, you know, the, to the closest approximation, it seems that we have roughly one of these microbial cells for each of our actual human cells. So we're all just half the people who we think we are. And, you know, whether that number is slightly out, um, it doesn't really matter. What matters is that there are so many of them. Um, you know, I am sitting here supposedly alone, um, just one individual, but really I am teeming with life. So does it make you feel less lonely or a little more invaded? <laughs> <laughs> it, it makes me feel more connected to the rest of the world. You know, microbes are the, the majority of life on Earth. They have been here for billions of years longer than any of the animals, plants, 
or other people whom we're more familiar with. And they are absolutely everywhere. And, and so by hosting microbes, I really am connected to life in its oldest and most diverse forms. We humans are just a speck of time, I think you even say, beyond the 11th hour. And yet in our, in our time on Earth, we have always had this, well, symbiosis or this partnership, as you call it. Can you say something mm. about how, you know, if that's evolving and how that's evolving and what determines the, the health or the lack thereof in our relationship to the microbes we came into the world with and certainly we adopt along the way. Yeah, so um, every human is is home to a thriving microbiome, and they do all sorts of important things for our health. Um, At the simplest level, they just take up space in our bodies and prevent um, more harmful, more weedy and invasive species from taking hold. They also help to build our immune systems. Um, So we think of the immune system as a way of guarding and destroying, guarding against and destroying microbes. But really, uh, microbes build parts of the immune system and they calibrate it so that they react, so that the immune system reacts to infectious threats, but doesn't overreact to benign and harmless things in the world around us. And in turn, the immune system helps to decide which microbes get to live in our bodies. So it's more like um, a a set of rangers in a national park who are caring for the residents of that park. Hmm. And There are many cases in which changes in the human microbiome have been linked to uh, our risk of all sorts of different diseases and disorders, everything from obesity to cancer to heart disease to diabetes. Um, And it's still unclear for a lot of these conditions whether the microbes are um, actually causing those disorders or just going along for the ride. But there are certainly experiments which suggest that they are grabbing the wheel as well, that they are having a causal influence on our risk of disease and on um, how healthy or sick we are. Yeah, and um, one of the main protagonists, actually, on the human side, I know you have many non-human species in the book, but on the human side, one of the key protagonists is um, Rob Knight, a biologist now at UC San Diego, formerly, until not too long ago, at University of Colorado Boulder, and started the um, Gut Microbiome Project. Tell us something about not just his and his lab's work, but sort of what's the state of science in terms of what we know about the link between our gut microbiome, our immune system, our heart, our brain? So people like Rob are modern-day explorers. They are like mm. um, Charles Darwin and Alfred Russell Wallace. These, these um, naturalist adventurers who sailed around the world, went to different islands, and found extraordinary animals and plants living there. Um, and they, you know, scooped up their samples with Net and Forceps and Charles. As people like Rob are now exploring the microbial world. So they're going on similar voyages, but instead of using going on ships, they are traveling to zoos and aquariums. They are taking swabs from people's mouths and guts and skins. And rather than using nets and forceps, they are using cotton tip swabs and DNA sequences. They are using genetic sequencing in order to work out which microbes are sharing our bodies. And they play just incredible roles in our lives. And there are so many that you could pick. For example, there is a strain called, um, there is a species of bacterium called uh, B. infantis, um, which dominates the guts of infants 
infants that are breastfed. And that's because breast milk contains, 10% of breast milk contains these sugars that babies can't digest, but that bee infantis can. And in return, in response to digesting those sugars, it feeds the baby's gut and it reduces inflammation and it confers all kinds of health benefits. Um, it is you know, a partner to us in some of our earliest days. We have evolved ways of feeding it specifically, and it in return does us good. For those who've turned in a little late after uh, the start, this is KGNU Science Show, and I'm Susan Moran. We've been airing the phone interview I had last week with Ed Young about his book, I Contain Multitudes, The Microbes Within Us and a Grander View of Life. We return now to the interview. I'm fascinated with the co-evolutionary aspects of this, of our relationship. I mean, why, sort of why do we rely on bacterial cues for our own existence, for instance, to make chemical signals and all sorts of things that we apparently depend on them to do? Yeah, it seems weird, doesn't it, that we should rely on bacteria in order to do really fundamental things like build our bodies and train our immune systems. But I think that's looking at it the wrong way. I think mm. we have to remember that humans and other animals evolved in a world that was already dominated by and full of bacteria. So why have we outsourced parts of our lives to them? We had absolutely no choice in the matter. It was almost inevitable. They were already there in the world, and it just made sense for us to respond to their cues, to use their presence and the molecules they produced in order to shape our very lives. We didn't come into existence in a vacuum, disconnected from the rest of the world. We were hmm. deeply enmeshed in the world right from the start, and that world was a microbial one. In fact, it seems we should, I don't know, sort of alter our semantics as well as our psychological and perhaps even spiritual understanding of I. I am we, right? And always was. Very much so. Um, Pronouns were a difficult thing when writing this book um, because clearly any definition of an individual, any concept of I or the self, takes a bit of a hammering when you consider microbes in the picture. You could think about an anatomical definition where, like me is everything in my own body, and yet my own body is largely composed of cells that aren't to do with me. You can maybe take a genomic definition where I am everything that carries my DNA. And yet those same microbes have their own genes, which make important contributions to my life. Um, so every definition we can think of through which we separate ourselves as individuals from the rest of the world is actually deeply complicated by the presence of these microbes that so intimately affect our lives. Yeah, it's fascinating. So, and it seems that I don't know, maybe for decades, there's been such a push on killing the germs, getting that antibacterial soap, you know, killing the 99.9% of the ones, and, which is not to say there's not MRSA and Ebola and all sorts of, of bad things out there. But what, like, what would happen if bacteria all disappeared? I think the, if, if all microbes disappeared, the consequences would be absolutely catastrophic. So many groups of animals would just die very quickly. Um, all of our livestock, cows, sheep, goats, they get most of their energy through the, microbe, the microbes that live in their guts and that break down the plants they eat. Other groups of animals, insects that drink the sap of plants, deep sea worms and clams and shrimp, they too would die because they get the vast majority. They, they rely on 
their microbes to either provide them with all of their sustenance or to supplement them with essential nutrients missing from their meals. Humans, we wouldn't die so quickly, but our health would also take a beating. We would be in bad shape later on because we also depend on microbes for their all sorts of aspects of our lives. And then there's the fact that microbes govern the cycle of nutrients around the planet of things like nitrogen and phosphorus and sulfur, and they help to break down dead bodies. They are lords of decay. So we get waste piling up. We get um, huge planetary scale disruption. Yeah, and I'm really fascinated with some of the non-human species in the book, like the zebrafish, the Hawaii bobtail squid. Tell us a bit of something about how they're better off with germs. Granted, not all good ones. So the and Hawaii, how do scientists know this? The Hawaii squid is a very endearing creature. It yeah. has um, light-producing bacteria in two organs on its undersides. They shine light below the animal that perfectly matches moonlight welling down on top of it so that any predator looking up at the squid from below wouldn't be able to work to make out the animal's silhouette. So the perfect the camouflage, right? It a sort of invisibility cloak. And the critical thing here is that the um, squid only take in one species of bacterium, a thing called Vibrio fisheri, that alone, out of all the thousands of species that live in the ocean, can colonize the squid. And when it does, it changes the squid's body. It, it almost terraforms it, like the colonists from science fiction films and books colonize mm. and terraform other planets. Um, it changes the squid's organs. It, it activates the squid's genes to create a better home for itself. And back to the human side. So, just so curious, you say in the book that it's rather disquieting learning that microbes have such an effect on our brain. Well, we like to think of ourselves as the, the masters of our own wills and our own fates. And yet we see that um, microbes can certainly alter the brains and behaviors of animals. Um, that's especially clear with, uh, with mice. Um, so when you look at mice that uh, carry or don't carry microbes or those that carry certain species, you see differences in their mood, their susceptibility to anxiety, their personalities, their resilience to stress. And that certainly suggests that microbes in the gut can influence the way individuals think. Whether that applies to humans or not is something that's still being openly investigated, but it seems very plausible that our microbes could also change the way we think and behave. And one of the key um, illnesses or, or syndromes that you point to and that is, so many people have now is some form of so-called IBD, the inflammatory bowel disease. Talk about what's, what's known between that link and how important it is to cultivate to maintain microbial health? So people, inflammatory bowel disease um, is pretty self-explanatory. It is, it, it is caused, characterized by intense inflammation in the gut. Um, and there are differences between the, gut, the microbiomes in the gut of people with and without IBD. So it looks like it's perhaps some change in the microbiome that is leading to the inflammation, maybe an, an, an imbalance of species um, those that are more likely to trigger inflammation and then a lack of those that are likely to quench it. Um, and this is an idea called dysbiosis, the idea that um, disease isn't caused just by a single microbe, 
um, like something like tuberculosis or cholera. Mm -hmm. Instead, it is the work of an entire community that has shifted into a negative state that is more likely to harm the host rather than to live in harmony with it. So how to even define and then attack, if that's the right word, or sort of tackle communities when it's not isolating a gene or a cell, or in this case, even one microbe? It seems well, so many converging hard. factors. I think that's the problem with uh, microbiome-based medicine, that mm. what we're talking about is an act of ecosystem engineering. It is trying to change something that is as complicated as a jungle or a forest or a coral reef. Um, and some attempts at doing that through by adding beneficial microbes, like via probiotics, generally don't work. Probiotics don't seem to do very much good for inflammatory bowel disease. Um, because the microbes there aren't very good at at sustaining themselves in the gut and so pass straight through or just disappear. There is a uh, a better option, perhaps. You could give someone an entire community of microbes uh, by transplanting stool from a healthy donor into a sick person with something like inflammatory bowel disease. Right. This is a procedure called a fecal transplant. And While it does a lot of good for treating um, an infection called Clostridium difficile, um, it doesn't seem to be as good or certainly less consistent for treating inflammatory bowel disease. Certainly, probiotics seem to be medically underwhelming. Fecal transplants have done have proven themselves for um, treating C. diff, but are still um, un, it's still unclear about their benefits for other conditions like IBD. Um, you know, it's still early days in this field of science. Um, we still know, know a huge amount. Uh, of about the uh, microbes that live inside us and their influence on our health, much less how to manipulate them with any kind of precision. I think we'll get there, but it's important to realize that the mathematics of the microbiome are just are not simple cases of addition or subtraction where you're trying to add beneficial microbes and you'll be fine or subtract the nasty ones and you'll be fine. Um, you know, these, like any ecosystem, it takes a lot of work to get these things to change, to get the changes to ho take hold um, and so on. In what ways has researching and, of course, writing this book changed you or changed your perspective on oh, what is I for that matter? It's given me a grander view of life which I attest to in the subtitle of the book. Um, I always used to be a fan of nature. I went to zoos. I watched wildlife documentaries and now I realize that you know, all of this life that I thought I knew, all the nature that I love is just the icing on this grand cake of life um, that the lives of all the creatures that I can see are just deeply influenced by the lives of creatures that I cannot see and that without understanding them and their contributions to us, I cannot really understand myself or ourselves. We really do need to take into account a microbial view of life in order to understand how, how our own cells and our own biology work. That was Ed Young, author of the book, I Contain Multitudes, The Microbes Within Us and a Grander View of Life. It was published a few months ago by Echo, an imprint of HarperCollins. Thanks to Echo for giving KGNU several copies, which generous members who pledged are now reading. And thank you again and again to all you existing and new members who are part of KGNU's very diverse microbiome. And to this, as Ed calls it, Grand Cake of Life.
That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer is Beth Bennett. This week's show was produced by yours truly, Susan Moran, and it was engineered by Kendra Kruger. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler and additional music by Philip Glass. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and, of course, follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Questions or comments? Call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Kendra Kruger. And I'm Susan Moran.